So we're continuing our uh, vision series. We're in the second of three pieces of that, Life with One Another. And uh, Jake <clears throat> preached the last two weeks and did an incredible job two weeks ago talking about how we are part of a worldwide body of believers. Incredible concept, especially as Stacy and I 20 years ago started going to Zambia and connecting with that part of the world and a brother and sister, many, many brothers and sisters in Christ over um, in Zambia and to this day, uh, just love being a part of that worldwide family. Last week, Jake um, talked about of John 17 and the, the importance of unity within the body and resolving conflict within the body. Very challenging, very, very good study that if you missed that, please go back and, uh, and listen to that. It was incredible. Tonight, uh, we're going to come back into this John 4 and dive into it in just a minute, but I want to frame up <clears throat> how this John 4 passage fits into this conversation of life with one another. You know, Jesus said in John 13, 34, that as I have loved you, you must also love one another. So, does that not raise the question, so how did Jesus love one another? If we're supposed to love as he loved, we better learn how he loved in order for us to love. And if, if a big part of our vision as a church is to make sure that this piece of loving one another, living in community with one another is healthy, robust, beautiful, then it seems like we have to dive, continually dive into the understanding of um, how did Jesus do it? How did he love? I'd like to frame up a possible paradigm for us to um, sink our teeth into that if we're gonna love like Jesus loved, we've got to see people as he saw them. And I would like to propose that he saw them first as alone and second as fallen or sinful. <clears throat> Needing a savior. First as alone and second as fallen. Now, let me unpack that briefly for you. And it, it really goes back to the very beginning in Genesis where God created every day and at the end of the day said, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good. And then after creating Adam before Eve, he uses that declaration that's very interesting where he says, Something is not good. And then Genesis 2.18, he says it's not good for Adam to be alone. Why is it not good for Adam to be alone would be another really good question. Especially when you consider that that's Genesis 2, sin enters the world in Genesis 3. So sin has not even showed up yet, and yet there's something not good. 
That challenged me deeply the first time I heard that because I had been taught, trained that if you want to figure out what's not good in this world, in this life, in my life, in other people's lives, look for the sin and that'll tell you what's not good and why it's not good. And yet, something's not good and sin hasn't even entered the picture yet. And I think that what that begins to do is unpack for us how God created Adam as perfect but needy. He had physical needs for air, food, water, sleep, and he had relational needs. And we can find those relational needs in the New Testament in the one another passages. Everywhere where it says things like encourage one another, comfort one another, accept one another, those verses don't make any sense unless we were created with a need for those things. And so it is not a sign that we are weak if we have those needs, it's a sign that we're human. So you could say that people have two problems. They have an aloneness problem and a fallenness problem. We followers of Jesus oftentimes have a tendency to focus on the fallenness end of that spectrum, the sinful side of that. But I think when we start looking at how Jesus related to people, I think we're going to see that Jesus had a methodology that focused first on the aloneness of the person and second on the fallenness. I, I didn't understand this the first 10 years of my marriage. And so I didn't understand my relational needs and I didn't understand Stacy's relational needs. And so I was constantly pushing her to God. Now directing your f- spouse, friends, family, kids toward God is a good thing. But if, if you're pushing them to God, because your fundamental understanding is is that all we need is God, then I think there's a structural flaw in the thinking. Because if we were created to need an intimate relationship with God and people, then it's not actually accurate to say all I need is God, unless you're referring to salvation. And Christ is all you need for salvation. But we have to be careful. If we were created with relational human needs, where we actually, where people need people, and those one and other passages in the New Testament clarify what it is that we need, then we need to see that 
we have a aloneness problem and a fallenness problem. And if that's true, then I think what we should see is when Jesus is dealing with people, he's gonna be dealing with both their aloneness and their fallenness, right? He is actually going to relate on both of those levels. And I would say that virtually every time you see him interacting with people, he starts with dealing with their aloneness and then toggles into their fallenness. And I think there's a real powerful, beautiful reason that he does it that way. And I think you're gonna see that even in this passage that we read today. So let's dive back into John 4 and to the woman at the well. How did he relate to her? How did he love her? What was his heart for her? And what was his approach? How did he see her? Well, so one, one of the first things that I would observe about this interaction he had with this woman is, is that he was vulnerable with her by admitting that he had a physical need for water. So he was, the fact that he asked for water was a, a great vulnerable way to start the relationship off, a very humble way of saying, I'm human, I'm thirsty, I need help. Would you please help me? That's a, a, a very humble, beautiful way to start out a relationship. He was incredibly respectful of her. She even highlighted that when she said, basically, I'm shocked that you're talking to me, a woman, a Samaritan woman. And down in several verses later beyond what we read, it says that the disciples, which had, they had gone into town, it's just evidently the two of them, Jesus and the Samaritan woman, talking, the disciples come back, and when they came back, it's, they, it says that they marveled that he was talking to this Samaritan woman. So everybody, her and them, were impressed shocked that he was, was talking to her. And I would say that that was a very incredibly loving by the Jews. Samaritans were half Jew, half Gentile. They had come about when the Assyrians had taken over um, the Northern tribe and they had inter, intermarried with one another and, and had set up Mount Gerizim as their place that they sunk, sank their teeth down and said, this is the spot where God shows up. You Jews think God shows up in Jerusalem. That's not true. He shows up at Mount Gerizim. 
and they sunk their teeth into that really deeply. And, and so you have this schism between them that was really deep. So much so, Samaria is just north of Jerusalem, about halfway between Jerusalem and the Sea of Galilee. And the, most Jews, when they were going from Jerusalem to the Sea of Galilee, would go around Samaria to avoid them. Jesus very intentionally, very specifically went straight up through Samaria, knowing Jesus, you know, the scripture tells us Jesus did nothing unless the Father told him to do it. So he and the Father processed this and agreed, I want you to go up through Samaria and I think he and the father talked about this woman. And I think the father revealed things to Jesus about her. Later on in the scripture, it says that Jesus revealed to her that I know you've had five husbands. That really got her attention when he uh, revealed that. And I think that, that Jesus um, was incredibly uh, connected to the Father and his heart to say, okay, is now the time for me to reveal that I'm the Messiah to the Samaritans? This is one of the first times when Jesus revealed who he was. And, and later on in that same uh, chapter, it says very clearly that Jesus revealed to her, yes, I am the Messiah. So here you have Jesus revealing to a Samaritan woman one of the first revelations to anybody that he was the Messiah. That, that is just incredible, beautiful, that he revealed that to her and, and just had to have made her feel unbelievably respected, unbelievably accepted, especially when you consider that she came to the well in the middle of the day when most of the other women came early in the morning. And evidently, her five marriages and her relationships were such that she felt like an outcast. And, and, and she felt very unaccepted. And so, you know, when, when Jesus revealed to her that he knew she had five failed marriages, I can't help but think she's sitting there thinking, oh, great, here we go. Now you're going to hammer me for my five failed marriages just like everybody else does. But that's not what he did. That was not his heart.
His heart was one of acceptance. And he, he, I believe that his, his way of dealing with her was, was done through a grid of how he saw her as hurting, rejected, alone. And I think that when he dealt with her so gently, so lovingly, so beautifully, I think it softened her heart and caused her to then be open to go back to her community with confidence saying to them, hey, I think this is it. I think this, this is the Messiah. And Jesus and the disciples stayed there two days and sure enough, many, many people came into the kingdom as a result of that. You know, it's, um, it's very similar, is it not, when you think about the way that Jesus reacted to the woman caught in adultery, where he saw her through the eyes, I think, of aloneness first, fallenness second. And so he accepted her. He embraced her in her fallen state and he loved her. He protected her from those leaders that were trying to kill her. And he, he dealt with her sin, but how did he do it? With a brief little statement, go and sin no more. And I think her heart was so touched by the way he loved her at the point of her neediness, her aloneness, her feeling so rejected that I think she probably did go and sin no more. Makes me, you know, as Stacy and I have been watching The Chosen and, and looking at some of these backstories that who knows if, if they happened, there uh, may or may not have. But it makes me, it's, it's causing me to start pondering. Hmm. I wonder what happened to that woman caught in adultery. Maybe she was 25 years old. We don't know when that happened. I wonder what happened. I wonder if she lived to be 65 years old. I wonder if she became a mother and then a grandmother. can't wait to get to heaven and talk to some of these people. I think it's going to be so fun. And, and, and I wonder if that, if that 65-year-old woman, maybe had a granddaughter who got caught in adultery, and the granddaughter came to the grandmother and said, Mimi, I, um, I did something really bad really bad and I and your 
you're the first person I thought of that I could tell it to. And that woman, that grandmother, says to that sweet granddaughter, let me tell you a story of what happened to me when I was 25. Because I went through the same thing you did. Let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about his love. Let me tell you about his acceptance. Let me tell you how he spoke words over me that changed my life and caused me to, to live for him. And so I give you that same love, that same acceptance. Maybe by that time, this grandmother has even read the Apostle Paul's writing in Romans 15, 7, accept one another as you've been accepted by Christ. And maybe she quotes that to her granddaughter and said, I tasted that acceptance by Christ 40 years ago. And I want you to taste it now. It's the same way that Jesus, similar way that Jesus reacted to Zacchaeus, the tax collector, the chief tax collector in Jericho. Climbs up the sycamore tree <laughs> and, uh, and Jesus says to him, come down, I'm coming to your house to eat tonight. One of the most loving things that Jesus could have done. By the way, I think that we should reinstitute that whole strategy of, of, of doing that like they did back then. Um, of just inviting ourselves to other people's houses for dinner. Like, Monica and Mason, we're coming to y'all's house this week for dinner. Is that okay? Um, okay. <laughs> and what's interesting about Zacchaeus is it doesn't eat, now who knows what was actually said, but it does not say in the scripture that Jesus even addressed his sin. He just loved him at the point of his neediness. Zacchaeus was a hated, hated, despised man. He had probably virtually no friends. And here's this famous preacher saying to him, basically, I accept you. It's incredible. I, um, I think this idea of removing aloneness is something, and, and this spills over into our third piece of being lights in the world. And I just want to, in closing, I want to read you the results of a study that was done three years ago. This this article is called An Epidemic of Loneliness. And in this study, there were several studies, 20,000 people uh, in one study, 
that was, were researched, 47% of the respondents reported often feeling alone or left out. Half. 41%, this is crazy, 41% of Britons say that TV or a pet is their main source of level position in the government. As the uh, minister of, of loneliness, Maybe we should have a staff position at Hope Church, the minister of aloneness. One U.S. Surgeon General, previous Sur Surgeon General of the U.S. said, during my years caring for patients, the most common pathology I saw was not heart disease or diabetes, it was loneliness. A 2010 study found that loneliness shortens a person's life by 15 years, about the same impact as being obese or smoking 15 cigarettes a day. I think that should actually become one of our um, growth strategies here at Hope Church, that we can just tell people, we can extend your life expectancy 15 years. Come to Hope Church. You know, What's, what was shocking to me was one of the studies that, that young people are actually most at risk of being lonely in modern society. In this one study, Gen Z members age 18 to 22 and millennials 23 to 37 scored the highest for loneliness. And in one study of Americans age 19 to 32, the top 25% of social media users were twice as likely to report feeling lonely as the people using it least. So, twenty-five years ago, when I first heard that God was concerned about my aloneness and my fallenness, I didn't believe it. I didn't embrace it. But as I began to understand it and study it and research it and, and, uh, and open my heart to it, I began to experience the compassion and the heart of a father who cares about my aloneness, who cares about my neediness, who created me needy and said, Randy, it's not a sign of weakness that you have these relational needs, that you need people. It's a sign that you're human. I want to, as Monica and the team come back up to close us out on our last song, I want to walk you through a couple of thoughts. If, if aloneness is really the place to start, rather than starting with dealing with trying to come at, go after sin, then I think it makes sense that if you're married, the first person that you need to be thinking about their aloneness is your spouse. See, I think one of the most important roles 
for you as a spouse in marriage is to remove aloneness. And, and, and so that means accepting, living out Romans 15, 7, accepting one another at the point of failure, comforting one another at the point of pain, respecting one another, encouraging one another, Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. And it all starts right there in your house with your wife, your husband, and your kids meeting those relational needs, seeing people as both alone and fallen, and saying, God, what do you want me to do to, to speak into the aloneness of my family? Father, I, I just thank you for your heart that you showed us through Jesus. I thank you for the way he loved that woman at the well. I thank you for the, the way he loved the woman caught in adultery. I thank you for the way he loved Zacchaeus. And I thank you for the beautiful end story of how they repented, turned from their sin, because their hearts, I believe, were so deeply touched by the love of Christ. You know, some of you are feeling some of that loneliness right now. And I, I just wanna invite you right now to tell Jesus about that feeling of loneliness that you feel. I just want to invite you to thank him that he cares about your aloneness, that he has great compassion for you. Invite him in to speak a word of care, of love, of acceptance. Maybe you've just made a huge mistake and you're feeling like a failure. Maybe you've just lost someone and you're feeling an incredible amount of pain. Would you just ask Jesus to comfort you right now? Would you ask him to speak a word of acceptance to your heart right now? Now, as we, as we stand and sing, would you just come and, and pray with one of our uh, prayer partners? Would you pour out your heart and let them love on you and let them 
be an extension of, of Jesus's heart for your aloneness and, um, and just let them be an extension of the heart of Jesus. So let's stand, sing, and, and uh, rejoice over the heart of our Savior for our fallenness and our aloneness.